Well, good morning. What a privilege it is to see you all here today and for me to have the opportunity to preach to you this morning. Today we're going to be looking at 3 John, 3 John in its entirety. And the issue at hand in 3 John, the issue being addressed by John to his beloved Gaius, is the issue of division within the church. It is a situation of fracturing, of splintering within the church body, fighting, disputes, gossip, slander. The unity which Christ bought with his blood that unified us to him and to one another, that is broken when we fight, when we stop treating each other with love and instead seek to hurt and to harm and to divide from one another. But this message that we have, this message from John, is here to equip us. So that despite whatever conflicts might arise, despite whatever difficulties, disputes, debates, that we might be able to remain faithful through it that we might be able to remain unified through it and to glorify his name through our unity in spite of whatever difficulties and conflicts arise within the body. Now, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 3 John, and I will read it in its entirety. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever work you do for the brothers. And are doing this though they are strangers, and they bore witness to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either, and he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our witness, and you know that our witness is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, I believe the reason that John is writing this letter to Gaius at this time all revolves around the division 
that is happening within the church revolving diatrophies. The church is in conflict. They have different views and different opinions, and some have been unjustly thrown out of the church already. The church has been fractured. When this type of church split happens, if anyone has been involved in such a situation, you know that it becomes very confusing and the lines become blurred very quickly and it becomes difficult to know who to trust and what to believe. Rumors spread. Slanders spread. All sorts of evil words are exchanged. And all through it all, if the church does not act Rightly, if we do not respond rightly, our witness to the world is ruined and our ability to live in a godly manner is interrupted. But this letter, this letter by John to Gaius, is set to give him a pathway, is set to give him what he needs to be able to endure this conflict that is occurring within the church and to glorify God through it, to remain faithful through the trial, through the division, through the fracturing and the fighting that is going on in the church. And I hope that for us it can do the same thing. Not that we would be fighting here, but that we could avoid it. And that if ever you come in a conflict, whether it's simply a small interpersonal conflict or any dispute, that you can get through that conflict while glorifying God, while glorifying Christ, while remaining obedient and not resorting to underhand tactics which ruin our witness and falter our faith. For that reason, I have titled today's message Five Keys to Living Faithfully Through Conflict. Now, our first key that we're going to take a look at this morning is modeled to us by the opening prayer of John to Gaius. Follow along with me as I read the first four verses. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The first key to living faithfully through conflict is to maintain godly love. Now, this godly love is the same thing that John here calls love and truth. Now, at first glance, it might be difficult for us to ascertain, okay, what does he mean when he says love and truth? And we could probably spend hours deliberating in truth, love, in truth, and trying to figure out what exactly that meaning is with the preposition. However, fortunately for us, John makes it easy. But he's actually going to model exactly what that means in his prayer in verses 2 for 3. And this prayer is going to model how we then ought to love one another. Look how he prays for Gaius. He says, I pray that all, everything, may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. True love, godly love, is love that is concerned 
for the best interest of that person. If you truly love someone as God does, then your love compels you to want for that person what is best for that person. And that is exactly what uh, John is expressing to Gaius here. He wants him to be well in all things. Yes, even in his health, even in prospering in things. But of course, that is all contingent on the fact that, that his soul is prospering. Because even though it is legitimate to pray for the health of one another, it is legitimate to pray for these things, we know that our health, we know that our prosperity in this life is absolutely worthless if our soul is not right with God, if our soul is not prospering, then all the physical health does us no good and in fact would not be what is in our best interest if that is the case. But because John is confident in the condition of his soul, he does pray for his whole being to prosper because he is genuinely concerned for him. Now we see modeled by John the fact that that the focus, that his preeminent focus is on the righteous living of Gaius in his next statements. He explains his prayer by showing what really brings him joy. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, if he loves as he truly should love, a love that desperately wants the best for another person, then the pinnacle of that love, the highest point of that love, the greatest expression of that love is to see that person walking in the truth because there is nothing better for them than to be walking in the truth. There is no one thing that could benefit any of you more than to be walking in the truth. And so if we are to love one another, as John expresses this love towards Gaius, it needs to be a love that is whole, that is complete, but whose highest point is to see one another walking in the truth. And it's not hard to see how maintaining this kind of sincere godly love can combat church disunity. After all, if every single person had that kind of love for one another, how on earth could you possibly get in a vicious fight? How on earth could you be brought to slander one another? How could you possibly be brought to dismiss or send away or cast off another person? Of course, this kind of love does not mean that you avoid conflict. Loving is not avoiding conflict either. If you love someone to the point to seek their best well-being, which is to walk in godliness, then that may very well lead you into conflict if their walk is going away from Christ. If you see your brother sinning and you love them truly, you will intervene. You will get involved. That will be conflict. But if you have a godly motive and a godly perspective, that conflict will not ruin your Christian witness. If anything, it'll strengthen it, grow it, 
and win your brother back. Now, I have to start by establishing that this first point, maintaining love, is the key to everything else. I have four other points and a whole lot of passage to go through yet. But if you cannot grab hold of this one, if you are unwilling to love your brothers and your sisters in this way, you might as well get on your phones and (laughs) do something else for the rest of this sermon because it's not going to do you any good. This love is the basis of getting through conflict in a godly way, of getting through conflict in a way that maintains faithfully walking in the truth. In the same way, if you have this sort of love for one another, imagine how could a theological conversation turn dirty? If your main goal in having a theological debate or conversation is to bring your brother into greater conformity with the Scripture, you will be patient, you will be loving, you will be tender. Your goal is not to win over them. It is to win them over. And if that is your goal, not to win, then you may be very much more open to the idea that maybe you're actually wrong. (laughs) Because we have a hard time with that sometimes. When we go into any debate, any conflict, simply wanting to win, we're willing to kick a few facts under the rug to stay in the winning position. But when our heart is sincerely motivated to love of our brothers and sisters, our hearts are also softened and more susceptible to the truth ourselves, more ready to be corrected ourselves. So before anything, the first key to living faithfully through conflict is to maintain a sincere, godly love for one another. But beyond that, moving on to our second key to living faithfully through conflict, we are to continue doing good. Now, what I mean is this. In conflict, regardless of the scale, whether it is a conflict just at home with a spouse, whether it's a conflict in the church going on between several people, or whether it's the entire body splitting in half, these have a way of captivating our minds and holding our attention and creating our focus on unhealthy things. It's natural. Natural is not good. (laughs) Our natural proclivities are not good. But we naturally tend to do that. And it can be easy for us to lose focus on the good works that we had done before, before the conflict interrupted it, before our minds were distracted. But here, John is encouraging Gaius to remain and to continue doing the good works that he did before the church split, and the fraction that was going on here. Now, I think it would be helpful at this point, before I read and continue with what's going on here, to give you a little background of the book. I kind of jumped ahead of myself a little bit here. But we need to know the background to some extent to know what's going on here. We need to know who's Gaius, who's John, who is all this. Um, And with the exception of John, the good news is we really have no idea. Um, Outside of what is in 3 John, we actually have no co-witness, no further testimony to any of the events or people in this book. 
The names may occur in other places in the Bible, but there's absolutely nothing, no basis that we have to make a connection as the same person. The names are so common that it would be a complete toss-up whether it's the same person. In all likelihood, these are different people than what we would find in Acts or anywhere else. So because of that, we actually have very little to decide on the background. And to make all we have is the letter itself. And it just so happens to be the shortest book in the whole Bible. Might be a small reason why I picked it today. (laughs) And because fewer people read it than almost any other book. (laughs) Thought it'd be interesting. But because of that, we cannot be overly dogmatic on what we think the background is. Because all we're really doing is reading back into the situation what we find and trying to interpret what we think going on. But I think what what I have here for you will make the whole thing make a lot of sense and will really clarify what's going on here for us today. I believe what we have in this situation is a, a single church. Now, in a single church in a single city, there may sometimes be different locations at this time because they had limited space to meet. Sometimes they broke, but they would still often consider themselves a single church. We had Diotrephes as the key leader in that church. Now, we know he's the key leader because he made sure he was the key leader. And if he became the key leader, he at least had some skill at it. He was a communicator. He was a teacher. People listened to him. People liked him. They appreciated listening to him. He had the people, he had their ear. He was very good at it. Maybe not doing it in a Christ-like manner, but certainly in being first. He had a skill at that. But at some point, we know, as we see in verse 9, John writes a letter to the church, apparently to discuss, apparently to bring up some issues that he had detected, that he had seen. And we know these issues are probably a multitude of them, probably varied, probably complicated, because in verse 13, at the close of this letter, he tells Gaius, I had much to write to you about. Meaning, there's a whole bunch of things I didn't get to in this letter. But we need to get to them eventually. Probably some of the details that we were looking at that he wrote in the first letter to the church. But he doesn't get to those in this letter. We don't need them. That keeps this letter for us as a blank slate that fits any church conflict situation. We don't need to know the specific details of what they're arguing, what they were fighting about. It gives us a a benchmark. It gives us a a process, the tools to work through it regardless of what it is. And so that's good for us. But, so John, and like I said, John loves in truth. He sees an issue. He's not willing to see the believers stray. He wants to see them walking in the truth. He addresses it. He writes a letter. Based on how John writes letters, I'm sure it was very loving, very tender, as he does even in this letter. But Diotrephes rejects it outhandedly. Apparently, he saw the letter as some sort of assault on his own authority. And he put his own authority, his own position, ahead of the well-being of his flock. He flipped true love on its head. Rather than considering what was best for his people, he only looked at what was best for him and what he desired, what were his idols, 
and what he wanted, which was to be first. And so he fought back to maintain the sin he wanted to hold on to. And he did not use godly means to fight back. We're told he sends out slander. And he went further. He did not allow the church to receive the traveling missionaries. Now, most likely, the missionaries that were coming through were all sent in an affiliation with John's church. And he cut off fellowship with them. He broke fellowship simply to remove the influence of John over his people so that he could be the authority, so that he could be the one in power. He makes sure that's removed. But this creates a conflict and a split within the church. Some of the people in the church, as we're told, it says those who want to welcome the brothers. In verse 10, he says, not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to. Now, the ones who want to, it's not necessarily those who have welcomed them. This is actually representing a whole group of people who have formed the opinion that that decision is not right. We're going to stand up. We're going to oppose that. We think we should continue welcoming the people. And he uniformly kicks them all out of the church. That's not church discipline. (laughs) That's not how it works. And there is no legitimacy to what he did. It is not a legitimate process. It does not follow the Lord's command. It is simply the overuse of authority of a single man guarding and protecting his own little fiefdom, not actual church discipline. Church discipline does not take whole sections of people all at once and kick them out. But, and this is really the key of what I'm trying to get to, that I think helps illuminate Gaius and where he is at in all this. This group of people who still wanted to continue to welcome the missionaries got kicked out of the church. And I can't be dogmatic, but the letter really doesn't allude to Gaius being among those. Even though John applauds his hospitality, it seems like from several indicators in this letter that Gaius has chosen to step back, perhaps not engage, not involve. Wait and let's see what happens. Let's just kind of, I don't know, hold off, see what happens. And it's, clear, it's pretty easy to see why he may have done that. It's not good. But clearly, Diotrephes, by the position he was in, he carried a fair amount of authority, and he was very convincing. If you would have heard him speak, true, it would have been Greek, you wouldn't have understood it, but if you did... Many of you would have probably found his arguments legitimate and convincing. He was an intelligent person who could make a very clear, rational argument to the point that people would follow him. So John needs to push Gaius a little bit. Now, Gaius has not, at this point, probably refused welcoming any missionaries. He has not refused at this point. He simply has not taken a stance. He has not come forward and opposed this plan by Diotrephes. He's still somewhat on the fence. So John now is going to convince him, no, you can't be on the fence. You need to continue doing the works you did before, which is, for you, Diotrephes, the work that you engaged in that was so beneficial, 
is the hospitality that you have shown towards the missionaries, the pastors that have traveled through. Do not cease to be good. That is our second key to living faithfully through conflict. Let's read. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. He is reminding Diotrephes, this work which you're not sure about if you're going to continue in, that you're on the fence at, it is actually a faithful work. Therefore, anyone who tells you not to do this doesn't have your best interest at heart because he's stopping you from living faithfully. But he's going to tighten the the screws a little bit more in verse 6. He's going to put a little more pressure on them. Strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So he speaks here of a group previously who had visited him, who had been welcomed into his home, who he had accommodated, and then likely sent off with a heavy gift to provide for their needs for the rest of their journey. In this society, in this time, it was a very um, honor, shame type society. There would be the, the patriarchs or the, um, uh, the very few wealthy and the very many poor. But those who were wealthy, such as Gaius, who had the means, once they had rendered help to someone, those who were rendered help to, they actually held a permanent kind of ongoing responsibility for them. And so what John is here telling him is, these people whom you've already given assistance, whom you've already shown love to, they've actually gone back to the church and they told all about it. They told everybody what you've done. It's great. Meaning, if they return and you say no, in this culture, in this time, that is a major shame violation. Even the culture outside of the church would look at that and be like, he did what? That's reprehensible. You can't, you've already put these guys under your house, under your roof. You've provided for them. You can't now turn them out. He's making it clear to follow this would be reprehensible. It would not be pleasing to God. And then he gives them a sort of pseudo command, not command, tells them you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. It's not an imperative. He's not saying do it, but but he's saying do it. (laughs) If you want to prosper, if you want to do well in life, you will receive them and send them on a manner worthy of God. And then in verses 7 and 8, we get a little bit of the actual doctrine behind it. This is actually one of the um, the few key verses we have that really informs our understanding of missions and, and how they should be financed, really. Because um, typically, in the ancient world now, you get paid by the people to whom you're rendering services to. Right? That's, that's pretty normal. And that's how it would work in the ancient times. There would be traveling philosophers, traveling teachers, and wherever they went, the people to whom they were rendering their service, teaching but pay them or provide for them, give them housing, lodging. That's how it worked. But with Christians, it was different. It, in fact, did not work that way. For it says, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing 
from the Gentiles. Now, we don't know whether this is they simply refuse or the Gentiles are like, well, we don't want to pay for this. <laughs> but the point is they are going out doing work for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, the same name that Gaius, the same name that we wish to see glorified, but they cannot procure normal income. They, the, the work that they are doing there does not provide for their needs. And so it is only makes sense. It is owed to them by us who likewise want to share in that work that we provide for those needs for them. And in so doing, he says, we become fellow workers with them for the truth, alongside them, doing the work here so they can do the work there where we are unable to go, where we are unable to bring the message. It is a partnership. And so John is telling him, if you cease doing this, if you cease giving them support, it is the word of God that you are actually strangling. It is the name of Christ that you are not allowing to go forth. And if it is truly your goal and your desire to see Jesus Christ's name pro- proclaimed in the world, you're not going to stop doing this. And so we couldn't make it more crystal clear to Gaius that this work, this thing of hospitality that Diotrephes is telling them to stop doing is in fact a key work of service that he ought to do. And it's the same, same types of things can happen with us. Now, we don't all minister in the same way. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same ministry within the body of Christ. But we all, regardless of circumstances, regardless of conflict and whatever, we need to continue using those gifts for the benefit of one another through conflict, through the fight, through attacks, using your gift even to serve the ones who are attacking you if they're doing it in an ungodly manner. It does you no good to withhold your gifts from the body. It only does you harm. What is in your best interest is to live and walk faithfully. And to do that, you must faithfully continue to walk in that which you've been gifted, to continue to use those resources that you have been given by the Holy Spirit, by God, for the building up of the church of Christ. Do not cease. Do not pull out. Do not stand back. Do not take a break simply because of the pressure of the conflict. Let your love draw you back in. Thirdly, our third key to living faithfully through conflict, oh, they're up there, is to be wary of deception. Now, I rewrote this one just this morning, actually. Um, The first one was pretty bad. Actually, I think all my points are pretty bad. But uh, originally I had it, be wary or beware of deceivers. That's pretty good. Diotrephes is a deceiver. Got to beware of deceivers, right? That kind of meets the point. Except here's the problem. How often are we the ones ourselves being deceived and perhaps spreading that deception? 
We cannot simply look to others for the deception that can rot the body of Christ from the inside out. We need to look first at ourselves. And look, have we embraced a lie about our brothers and sisters in Christ, about ourselves and our own worth? If we don't first root out the lies in our own hearts, we're completely ill-prepared to root out the lies in another brother's heart and to help him with that. And we can see in this letter how destructive Theotrophy's rampage has been on the church. Now, it's true. The greater the authority, the more potential damage can be done, and Diotrephes had a lot of authority. Therefore, he did a lot of damage. But even, even at the smallest level, slander within the church, passing on hurtful gossip, can do tremendous damage to the fellowship of the body. A lie that is able to spread even to a small part of the body can create small factions against another, one another, and they, they don't even really know the real reason why. They've just heard something bad about someone else, and now they hold on to that, and suddenly you get little pockets that just don't like each other, and, and they really actually have no basis in truth. And if it was in love, if there was true love for one another, there would be an attempt to seek reconciliation. And so we must be very careful and guard against this temptation of our own hearts to be deceived. But we also need to look out for other deceivers, for those who may be trying to deceive us. For we see what happened with Diotrephes. He put himself, he rejected the authority And he responded to John's letter by maliciously maliciously gossiping, which caused the whole body to suddenly wonder, well, I don't know if John is telling the truth. When someone slanders and you hear the slander, you're going to have one of two responses. You're either going to believe it, and that's real bad, or you're going to not believe it, but you're still going to have lingering doubts. And they're both bad. And I think that's what's going on here. Some people straight up believed the lies about John and the others. Others heard it and thought, well, that that doesn't sound right, but, huh, I wonder, could it be? Do you think he would? Think he would do that? Maybe? And now seeds of discord, seeds of discontent, seeds of mistrust are being sown throughout the body. That's what slander does. Gossip to a small degree as well. And we can see the fruit of what Diotrephes is doing. Regardless of whatever clever arguments he may have had to his people, John is smart. He didn't need a long letter. He didn't write like Paul to combat everything Diotrephes was saying. Instead, he wrote a very short letter that only detailed four things not that Diotrephes was saying. But he said, this is what he's doing. This, 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 this. And those works are evil. You will know them by their fruit. He doesn't have to argue for the sake of Gaius any of the details of any of the issues that are going on. 
Instead, he takes Gaius' head, which is probably up in the clouds, distracted by all the things that are going around, all the, all the words, all the debates, all the discussions, and just says, look at the fruit right here. It's plain as day when you look at it that way. He is behaving wickedly. He's doing wicked things, and he's preventing you from doing what is righteous. Clear as day. But how do we then, if slander, malicious slander is so destructive, how can we guard ourselves? How can we guard the church against it? What is our responsibility there? Well, we have to stand up for the truth. And going back to the first point, we need to be loving our brothers and sisters in a way that seeks what is best for them. And here's the thing. If that is your true goal, there's really only two reasons I could come up with that you would ever need to tell someone else something bad about someone or say something negative about someone. The first is you're progressing to stage two of church discipline. The second might be if you just generally see a struggle and you're looking for someone that you think you can plant in there as potential helper to come alongside them possibly, but that's rare. But that first one, that, that's really the key, to, I think, to sorting out what is slander and gossip. See, if someone comes to you and they say something that's actually quite unpleasant about someone else, something that makes you think less of them, perhaps telling you something they did, I can't remember where I heard this. I think I was with someone when something like this happened. Someone brought something up and don't know who it was, but the response was marvelous. He responded to this individual who was bringing up some garbage on someone else with, wow, and how did they respond when you addressed them with this sin? I didn't. (laughs) Oh, so this is slander or gossip. If you're not seeking what is in their best interest, it's slander or gossip. There is no reason we should ever have something negative, something hurtful to say about another believer in Christ if it's not for their benefit. And as we know, steps of church discipline, you don't don't address other people before you've addressed him. And so if you find perhaps this has been a pattern, this is something to be repented of. This is something to seek forgiveness in. It is so hurtful to the church and so detrimental. And in many ways, it's... With Diotrephes, it was very clear and in focus because he was up here. He had this position. But it can linger in a church and just cause gangrene to spread and hatred to spread slowly. And it needs to be checked, needs to be addressed. So our third key, be wary of deception, is so critical. If we are not looking out for the deception in our own hearts and trying to be clear of deception within the body, it can destroy the body. We must be very careful. Fourthly, Our fourth key to living faithfully through conflict 
is you need to follow the right standard. Now, what I mean by this is he's already laid out for us. He's laid out for Gaius, this is good and this is bad. But there's still the point you got to do something about it. You actually have to engage. You have to actually make a choice. Now, here in verse 11 is where I see the best evidence that Gaius himself was simply a member of the church. Some have held that perhaps he's a leader, and I don't know, it's possible, but he certainly wasn't behaving like one, if that's the case. John never asked him to do anything which is leader-esque. He doesn't call him to do anything leading. But he does tell him to follow, to imitate, as one who is in the church, not a leader in the church. He tells him, do not imitate what is evil. Clearly, he saw that there may have been a pull by Diotrephes. Just the sheer proximity of being around him so long, there is a natural tendency to imitate who you're around. And he doesn't want that to happen to Gaius. And so he offers him an alternative. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And then he proceeds to bring up another individual, Demetrius. He tells us, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Now, most likely, Demetrius was probably a a companion of John. I'm guessing, I can't know, but probably someone very close to how Timothy was for Paul. Someone that John would trust. Someone John could trust to send with a letter to also be able to then deal with the situation in his absence. And we can see here that Demetrius is clearly a leader, someone who can be followed, and someone who can be trusted. And so John guides him over to a better alternative for a mentor, a better alternative for someone to be shaping him and to be emulating and to be copying for his imitation. If he's going to be following someone, it needs to be someone who is manifesting the fruits of the Spirit. And so we need to be careful of that in our own lives. We can't be content to simply maintain in the status quo of who we are with. We need to actually assess, are the people I associate with, would imitating them be good for me? Now it's the unfortunate, I think, fact of just being human that we naturally, passively, no effort at all, imitate evil. When it's around us, we just, it just naturally accumulates and we bring it on. No work involved. To imitate good, however, for some reason, that requires work. That just doesn't happen passively. That requires us to identify what is good in that person. To identify where we in our lives could be reformed, could improve in that way, and to actually submit our bodies, and our minds to do that thing which is good. It is a command he gives here. There are only two imperatives in this whole letter, and this is one. This is one of the key statements. Do not imitate evil. 
but imitate good. There is a choice to be made. Through this whole division, through this whole split, a choice to be made. In every conflict you are in, there's always a choice. You are never without a choice. How often do we get in conflicts and we think, I had no choice. You pushed me to it. No, you had a choice. You had a choice. You could imitate evil or imitate what is good. You could put yourself forward and your own desires and your own ambitions or you could put the good of that person first. You have a choice and you need to choose. Fifth, our fifth key to living faithfully through conflict. And this is to support the truth. I mentioned it early on that I believe Gaius had sort of, in his confusion, in his lack of knowing what to do, he had failed to step forward. He had failed to support what he may have believed was true. He did not partner with those who had been thrown out of the church already. He did not stand firm on that issue, but perhaps vacillated somewhat, waited, hesitated. John is pushing him now. It is time to decide. You see, Demetrius is putting out from the church everyone who has any association whatsoever with John. He wants no part of him within his church. And here John is scheduling a meeting with Gaius. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Gaius cannot attend that meeting without firmly meeting the hostility of Demetrius. He needs to make a choice. He needs to stand for what is true, for what John has clearly shown to be true. And he knows to be true in his own heart. For as we can see, Gaius truly is a true believer. John had confidence in him and believed he would respond in the way that's right. But he goes a little bit further. This last phrase, he says, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Now, I don't know about any of you, but that caught me as really weird as I was studying this passage. They they don't use the word friends (laughs) in an opening or closing of a letter. That's just not normal. It's either they list individual names or they say everyone at the church, greet everyone or greet... Even John, all through this letter, what is the term he used? Brother, 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 brother. He calls them brothers. But here at the end, he says, greet the friends, each by name. These are specific people. This isn't a generic willy-nilly greet good people. This is, he has a specific group of people in mind. I don't know who. No. (laughs) I have two very good guesses. This is one, either those who had been already put out of the church by um, Diotrephes, 
the friends to the missionaries, the ones who remained friendly to the missionaries. It is, it is either them or perhaps it's a group of the missionaries themselves. But we do know for sure that whoever they are, they are those that Diotrephes does not want anyone in his church to have fellowship with. And so by greeting them, Gaius will participate with them. Turn back just one book with me real quick to 2 John. Greetings, association, your physical actions and participation with other people meant a lot at that time, more than it does now. Here in the South, we can give wonderful greetings with our worst enemies. You know, it's... So... But it's a little different here. Your actions, everybody in the community saw it and they took note and it meant something. It had implications. So let's read verse 10 and 11 of 2 John, what John has to say about greetings. And now this is a situation flipped. Okay. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For... The one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So if greeting a false teacher is bad because it involves participation with that person, then here in 3 John, we actually have the complete opposite. Failure to greet them would show hostility and disconnection. By greeting them by name, he will be forced to recognize each and every one of them and their legitimate position as believers and their legitimate function within the church. And it would be an outright rejection of the lies that Diotrephes has been telling about them. John is putting him in a position that requires him to pick a side to stand, not for himself, not for John, but for the truth. And I pray that we all stand for the truth. But, like I said, point one, with love. Sincere, genuine, godly love that looks for the best and is concerned for the best in one another. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we just praise you, Lord, for you are our God, Lord, and we are your people. And I thank you for this fellowship, for this body of believers, for these people that you have put me with, Lord. I just thank you for them so much, Lord. I thank you for their love of you. I thank you for their just submission to your truth and their willingness to love one another. I just pray, Lord, that you would just keep our fellowship free from deceit, free from selfish gain and selfish desires. I pray that we would have a sincere, godly fellowship that proves to be a testimony to the world and an encouragement to us all as we continue to strive to encourage one another on to walk in faithfulness. According to your word, we pray. Amen.